What's happening, Brew Theology listeners? This is Ryan, and on this episode of the Brew Theology Podcast, my good friends Janelle Liz, Andy, and Megan got together, and they brewed up a fantastic episode on Holy Grub, religion, faith, food, spirituality, all things pertaining to food. If you get hungry during this episode, go grab a beer, because beer is food. Speaking of this episode, it's brought to you by Boggy Draw Brewery. Boggy Jaw Brewery is one of the 12 breweries in Denver that's going to be a part of the Mile High event of the summer, Theology Beer Camp. Go to TheologyBeerCamp.com right now. Get your tickets. Trip Fuller and Peter Rollins are coming to the Mile High City. Boggy Draw Brewery gave us the Pale Ale, their Trail 199. They also gave us the It's Lovely Stout, along with the Cream Ale, the Space Cowboy. And I saved an ESB, the ES Bueno. And I sent that bad boy up to Oklahoma City to Charlie. Charlie, if you're listening right now, man, you gave some great beer from Oklahoma City. And I just want to give you guys some love because I've been talking about Denver this whole time. But if you're out there and you don't live near Denver or maybe your Southwest flight takes you to Oklahoma City a bit cheaper, less expensive, why don't you head over there? Because they are also doing the Theology Beer Camp the week after we are. Trip and Pete are going to be there as well. Delicious beer at Oklahoma City. I cannot knock them. Even though OKC does not show up for the playoffs, they do show up when it comes to delivering really good beer. Some of my favorite beers actually in Oklahoma City. So go to TheologyBeerCamp.com and check out the two different weekends where Trip and Pete will be in Denver and OKC. And speaking of uh, brew theology, I mean, you know, right now, if you, if you actually like this episode, stop what you're doing right now. And you don't even know what's next. You know, you might not like this episode. But if you like any episode, just do this. Go to iTunes, rate it, review it, share that online. Go to Twitter. We are brew underscore theology. Also, we're on Instagram and Facebook at Brew Theology. We've got a website, brewtheology.org, because we are more than a podcast. Brew Theology exists to brew theology and to create this healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue in pub communities that we want to see happening across the globe. So you can be a partner, you can be a sponsor, you can be a monthly contributor. There are incentives on the Patreon page as well, where if you give to us, we will gladly give back to you. So speaking of going across the globe, we're headed to North Carolina this summer to the Wild Goose Festival. Go over to wildgoosefestival.org. And if you're wondering to yourself, what is the Wild Goose Festival? Well, it's an art, music, and story-driven transformational experience grounded in faith-inspired social justice. Now, that might sound like a lot because it is a lot, and it's complicated, and it's about a bunch of people who are like-minded and yet at the same time have very different stories and experiences, people of different uh, genders and races and straight and LGBTQ, the whole nine yards. This is an all-affirming event where really love and beauty and justice And this thing that we like to call the Holy Spirit likes to revel and get a little rowdy. So we will be at the podcast booth. That's right. It's called the Goose Cast. We'll be at the Goose Cast stage. Brew Theology, we're doing one of the happy hours on one of the nights. So check out the schedule. And we would love to be a part of that conversation with you. And so also we will be contributing on another stage where we're going to do a presentation called Prost, P-R-O-S-T, which means cheers, of course, because we believe that at the end of the night, regardless of where you stand or the person across from the table from you stands, theologically, ideologically, with your worldview, anything else, we like to cheers at the end of the night and say, hey, don't be a jerk. I love you. All right, go in peace. So wildgoosefestival.org. I've actually got a promo code for you right now, a promo code. If you want to be a part 
of this festival right now. Go to wildgoosefestival.org. And I want you there. Okay. Press, uh, go to the tickets. You got that good stuff right now. Excellent. Now, if you uh, use this code right now, you're going to get a discount. And once you use this discount, make sure you give us a little bit of love online. Follow us, share it, say, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate the love that you just gave me. And this is, here it is, GooseCast17. Use that code, GooseCast17. And if you use that, you will get a discount, which means more money back in your pocket. And if you have more money back in your pocket, then either you can share that or you can go get some more beer or you can go feed your children or whatever you do. So go to the wildgoosefestival.org, sign up today. We would love to see you there and have conversations with you. All right, guys, peace, enjoy it, love it, share it. Adios. I haven't had Burger King in probably three years. Actually, probably more than that, so I can't really say how shitty or not shitty the food is. <laughs> but I would take Burger King over to play if there were only two left. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Andy. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Me coming on too. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. Tonight we'll be talking about religion and food. And that was our first off-the-cuff commentary. <laughs> I'm Janelle, and I'll be your host. Um, and so tonight we're waiting for the storm to come into Denver. So we're all a little bit bubbly and we also have been drinking a little and we had this beautiful meal by Liz. So we have a lot going for us. So we hope this will be fun. Um, we're going to share with you the religion and food practices, and then I'll have, uh, we'll read to you and then we will have everybody introduce themselves. And we want to give a shout out to Boggy Draw Brewery for sharing with us tonight space cowboy and it's lovely stout which is very smoky and deep by the way um so let's read for you this great piece of curriculum written by alex michaelis and uh it's on religion and food practices food and religion are routinely interwoven into the fabric of cultures far from being separate entities a religion's perspective of use of and beliefs about food and con- consumption help define norms, practices, and habits surrounding eating, and manifest in a wide range of practices around the world. For instance, Hindus' reverence of cows helped shape an entire culture of people who revere and protect cattle, often leading to violent cultural clashes between local Muslims, from whom cow is one of the few halal or allowable types of meat in which to eat. Or, for instance, take the Catholic observance of Lent, which for devotees encourages an abstinence from red meat at times, while also employing an elaborate metaphor or is it, about eating and drinking the flesh and blood of their Savior. Religious attitudes and ideas towards food can roughly be categorized into three main groups. Purity rules, sacred and forbidden foods, rites and ceremony, and fasting. Perhaps the most common religious influence on food consumption is that of purity rules, wherein consumption of certain foods is against the rules, while other foods are sanctioned as clean and therefore consumable. The most prolific examples of this are found in the kosher laws in the Jewish tradition, and similarly, the rules of halal in Islam. Likewise, Hinduism encourages vegetarianism, but commonly people only refrain from eating pork and beef. The underlying reasoning for such rules are varied, but fundamentally, group identity can be seen as an influence. From a sociological perspective, social inclusion and identity have long been drivers of social behavior. The signifying of one's inclusion to a social group through the public display of eating or not eating certain foods is a strong indication of strong bonds and self-identification with a specific religious community. 
Additionally, belief in inherent clean and unclean categories of food have great influence on how we think a god or gods may view us on a spiritual level. However, Jesus challenged this notion, essentially saying that nothing external can pollute a person. While some Christians still embrace purity laws, it is not as commonplace as kosher or halal rules. Religion also uses food in religious rites and ceremonies. Perhaps the most prolific is the use of food and ceremony to mark something that is religiously significant. Christ himself used the consumption of food and wine as a metaphor for himself and his actions on the cross. There are many foods in Jewish culture that symbolize a whole host of collective memories and experiences, from unleavened bread to the prolific and meticulous Passover Seder. While food often is a marker for events or concepts in a collective memory, sometimes it takes on supernatural qualities. Traditional Catholics believe the Eucharist, bread and wine at communion, literally becomes the blood and body of Christ, sustaining them until the next communion. And in the Christian tradition, one's first communion is far more than a ceremony, but rather a rite of passage and a welcoming into a community. Finally, we, we come to the extremes of food and religion, fasting and feasting. While feasts typically are associated with a ceremony, a feast is in fact distinct from the actual religious ceremony. It is the celebration of such ceremony, the party to mark the, the marking. Easter feast, in its numerous expressions, is a multi-day celebration of Christ rising from the grave, which is marked by a long and extensive religious ceremony beforehand, comprised of communion, lament, fasting, abstaining, and etc. Fasting, on the other hand, is a withholding of consumption, either of a particular food or of all food for a particular amount of time. The Christian observance of Lent comprises a fast in which people typically give a food uh, as a sacrifice of service. The Muslim holy month of Ramadan is a month-long fast from many physical indulgences, including food, liquid, smoking, and sex during the daylight hours. It is then broken by feasting during the holy holiday of Eid al-Fatir as a celebration of the ending of the month-long fast. While fasting has numerous uses, it primarily is for redirecting one's attention to the divine and away from the physical world. It is a way to reorient one back to God by way of self-denial. One cannot talk about food and religion with addressing the issues of food access, hunger, famine, and inequality. While so much thought is put into purity rules and observance of ceremony, others are struggling to find enough to sustain themselves or subject to eating unhealthy and expensive foods. Furthermore, the commodification and industrialization of the food industry often means that in ceremony or celebration, we are often purchasing food that perpetuates inequality, poor animal conditions, and unjust wages. And herein lies the question, is it what and when we eat, or is it why and how we eat? Do the religious traditions surrounding food help us understand food in such a way as to promote justice, or is food used in religion in a fundamentally personal way? Can it be both? Good question. So before we get started, I want to let everybody introduce themselves, what they're drinking tonight, and uh, we're going to answer the question. I do, I do this sometimes at my table. What is your favorite thing about these early summer storms in Denver? So I'm Janelle. Uh, I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene. I now um, attend a Lutheran church and have a house church in my home. I also uh, am fairly progressive, and so I usually go by the label of progressive Christian. Tonight I'm drinking the Boggy Draw It's Lovely Stout, and it is quite lovely. And I love thunder and lightning. 
all the way. So I'm Liz, and um, definitely as a little kid, I attended Sunday school. And as a teenager, I was very much into going to church and being a part of church community. As a young adult, I was an atheist. As a slightly older adult, I became a Buddhist, uh, working in tandem with Christians and spiritual development. So that's been really an interesting journey. And as a 34-year-old adult, I'm moving back away from atheism and starting to consider the possibility of what theism might look like in my life. So that's been interesting. Favorite thing and about storms? storms? So in Colorado, it snows all the way up until June, conceivably, and all through the <laughs> summer up in the mountains. And I think it's really cool to be from a place and understanding a place enough to to know these things and to appreciate these things that are very, very specific to the place that we live. Yep. So I'm Andy. Um, I grew up in an interfaith household with my dad's family all being Jewish and my mom's family all being Christian. Um, I was raised in the United Methodist Church as kind of my support system, and I still identify as a Christian and a United Methodist. Um, I work for the Methodist Church out of the regional office here. Um, so I work all throughout Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado, and I also push against the Methodist Church because I have some issues with the institution. Um, my favorite thing about these kind of storms um, I don't know. I grew up at the beach and so I grew up with hurricanes. And so I like a big storm where, you know, everything shuts down and you're bored at the windows. And so this reminds me a bit of back home, back in Virginia. And I'm drinking a Space Cowboy American Ale from Boggy Draw. Right. Um, I'm Megan and I was raised in an evangelical home. And when I was about, I don't know, like 13, I kind of battled with thinking if there was a God or not. So it's kind of like a closet atheist. And then, um, then I converted to Mormonism, was a very dedicated and devout Mormon, went to a church school, served a mission, and um, about a year and a half ago, I left the Mormon church. Now I'm just um, figuring things out, uh, but not ruling anything out. So, um, but I'm definitely, I don't really identify as Mormon or a Christian, um, just learning. Um, I love storms. I'm from New York. Um, when it rains, I love the smell of the rain. And um, sometimes it makes me think of New York and, and actually feeling humidity is nice for a chance in Colorado. Um, tonight, I'm drinking Stem Cider. Um, it's a local brewery. Really good. I got the off dry one. Sounds yummy. It is quite dry. Slightly off. No, it's really right. good. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, we're going to talk about tonight food. And uh, as I said in the intro, Liz was really gracious and cooked for us some polenta with vegetables and tomatoes. It was awesome. So good. And we've had, Super tasty. We've had ice cream and her hospitality is amazing. So thank you for setting the table for our discussion on religion and food. Five stars. Five stars. Cheers. So our first question is, do you follow any dietary rules year-round for religious reasons? What about at certain times of the year? Do you have theological reasoning for it? And do you need theological reasoning for it? Um, so I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I strictly follow a dietary rule based on a religious or spiritual perspective or thought necessarily, but I have, okay, well, I actually take that back. So I study Torah a lot, um, not as much anymore, but I have adopted a bit of 
I guess some ways of eating kashru or kosher um, in that I don't like to mix dairy and meat. And that's a rule. Um, and I still kind of follow that in a way because to me, to put dairy and meat together, yeah, it's going to taste so good. Um, but but I feel like it kind of makes makes me consider a little bit more about the sacrifice that the animal's giving up in a way to not maybe um, be gluttonous in what I'm taking from from like this life form. And so, um, I don't know, I kind of like that idea because it comes from like not, not killing the, the cow that you get milk from, even though it's very unlikely that that's what's going on in modern day North America uh, due to factory farming. But um, it still kind of makes me think and kind of appreciate more of the sacrifice that the animal has given up. So, mm-hmm. I don't currently, but I used to. Um, so I used to work and run a CSA, so a community-supported agriculture project. Um, and so when I was doing that, it was much more tied with the land. And so I was intentional about eating what was in season and eating what we had produced ourselves and knowing how it had been grown and all those kind of things. Um, unfortunately, since I don't work at a farm anymore, I don't really follow those practices anymore. Um, and so it wasn't an explicitly religious thing. It was more just being conscious of how I was using resources, um, the impact I was having, um, how it was taking away from other people's access. And so, yeah, I, I wish I still did. Um, but it's much more challenging living in a city than when you're running a farm to actually follow those cycles of, of life. Yeah, that's interesting. And what I'm, I keep hearing is, as we're going around the table is that there's ethical considerations around food. And, and I think that's, that's probably fair. I mean, we live in a real postmodern society. And although we all come from some sort of religious background, you know, we're able to sort of incorporate a variety of ethics into it. So I was vegetarian for four years for ethical reasons, like very, very concerned about animal welfare. And as Megan was kind of saying, like the idea of um, not treating the animals' lives like they mattered and being really gratuitous about that. And then, yeah, I was an urban farmer for two years and it very much, you know, leading up to that point, really thinking about like, okay, do I eat the organic beet that came from Mexico but was transported 700 miles or do I eat the non-organic turnip that came from Miller Farms in Colorado and really weighing hard those ethical considerations around where does food come from and kind of pushing back against the mainstream ideas about food access and food can food convenience and was being sort of countercultural in that way which in some ways a lot of religions do that too as as Alex was saying in his notes, this idea of how we eat defines who we are as a social group. I think that's really interesting. It sends a signal if if you talk about it, if you don't talk about it, where you vote with your money, so to speak. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that maybe in the culture where some of these rules come out of, um, those were ethical concerns at the time and care concerns as well. Like, how do we not get sick? How do we not pass germs? Those kinds of things. And the second question goes right into some of this that you guys mentioned. Scientifically, there can be arguments made for the purity of food. Low-fat, high-vegetarian, and well-rounded diets are preferred in certain circles, at least, while organic, natural, and non-GMO foods are on the rise, specifically because people find them to be more pure and healthy. However, this is primarily for physical health, not religious purity. Can these things be connected, and how so? Does the divine care about our physical purity as it pertains to food? Yeah, let's talk about that because I, there is this idea of like clean eating. 
Yeah, so I would look at some of these, you know, purity laws from my tradition. You look at the Torah, look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, and a lot of those, at least from my understanding, are born out of practicality. Um, so a lot of the language around not eating things like shellfish were literally about you're going to get sick if you're traveling on the desert as a nomadic people eating shellfish. Um, those kind of real pragmatic things played into that purity question. You know, we wanted our community to be healthy, and so we eat healthy foods. Um, I think that's at the root of a lot of a lot of this. Where I can I can be feel sometimes a little saddened by how it shows up in a modern American culture because I see um, the idea of clean eating is coming very much out of the upper echelons of society. So mm-hmm. people who are filtering their water, who are you know who are able to buy things that are you know at a premium at a premium because it's better for them they feel like they're gonna get less instances of cancer you know their um their kids are gonna be healthier their kids are you know all of these things but it's i remember reading a marketing study and that marketing study said that only people with the very highest incomes ever choose those factors as a preference when considering what they're eating as as opposed to say the economics of it or I definitely have seen some of this in my family where that would be their, their choice would be to eat more pure, but they can't, they just can't afford it. And I think that that also like we, uh, those of us around this table are very aware of things like food deserts and the problems that are caused in urban centers when there aren't places to get groceries. And that leads people to eating stuff like Doritos and hot dogs from the Seven Eleven because there isn't any other food. And that makes a whole nother statement about religious conditions for eating when you don't have access to food. Right. I mean, a lot of the communities that I work with, I've asked like, what is the most affordable thing you can buy to feed your family? And it is the eight piece chicken, either from the Safeway or the Albertsons or the KFC, but like buying bulk fried chicken is the cheapest thing to buy. It is not the healthiest thing to buy. It is not going to keep you nourished in a way that is sustainable. But if you've got no money and that you're looking for bang for your buck, that's why a lot of the impoverished communities in places like Colorado and even here in Denver um, are not eating healthy because they can't afford it. They can't go grass fed. They can't go organic. They can't go fair trade because they don't have the funds for that. And so um, the people who a lot of ways need it the most end up with the least access to the food that's going to sustain them. Yeah. And I think it's not a dialogue that's had often enough, but I, I have to believe it's sort of like care of the earth, care of our bodies has to be a part of any faith that I think I would believe in this idea of care for self and then being able to turn around and then care for your world around you. You think God cares about that? Any God I would want to believe in, I would want to think so. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we do with that then? When God wants us to be healthy, but people don't have access to healthy food. When God wants us to take care of our bodies, but people don't have the means to eat in a way that will preserve life rather than shorten their lives. Sorry, not to put you on the spot. That's for the whole group. But I think that's, that's why I got into urban farming. Now, did I make any great impact in the food desert that I lived in? Eh, probably not. But definitely, again, you, know, you, you can pick an issue and you can work your whole life to try to make some progress on that issue. But I think in the ways that I was not successful, there are a number of, of activists who are very active in food culture in Denver. Um, a lot of ad, food advocates in Denver um, advocates within the African-American community, the Latino community is trying to make it easier for people to eat. And I think that's an incredibly powerful social justice issue 
It just happens to be one that I'm not working on as much anymore as I used to be. But, um, you know, as a, as an ex urban farmer, I would say that, you know, it's still really great to do things like gardening. Like if, if urban farming, meaning producing and selling food in an urban setting doesn't work for the economic reasons, which for me, it didn't being able to teach people how to grow their own food and having that agency, not only is that sort of a democratic grassroots empowerment situation, but it also does lead to healthier eating and it can be done pretty much anywhere. I'm a big believer in it. Sustenance style food production in urban settings. So then Alex challenges us, I mean, following right up on that, the larger question is why food? Why not enforce social norms in other ways? Why not use sport or art to mark significance? Food has crept its way into how religious people mark and observe significant moments in their collective religious experience. Why do we think that is? So let's start with yeah. the first part of that question. Like, like we need food to live. So then why would we restrict people from being able to eat any food that's available to them? Ah, are you talking about like fasting then? Or uh, they, no, I or... was specifically thinking like, um, just, you know, kosher and halal, like I'm limiting what might be right in front of you that you can eat mm -hmm. yeah. and you're hungry and you can't eat it. Um, that what's that about? What that, do you do with that? What is that? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, as as we read, I think yes, it definitely has to do with like identifying your your community and your social group. Um, that can definitely be a factor. Um, but I would say at least at least um, as somebody that just studies, I'm no like expert or anything, but um, of studying Torah um, and then reading a lot of commentary on the laws of um, kosher kashrut. Um, there's, there's a really great book that I was reading for a while. Um, it starts talking about some of the main points of why Kashru is a law and, and what we can get out of it and what, like, what in today's sense we can get out of it. And a lot of it is, comes down to like ethical eating. So part of it, like, why, why should your knife be sharp when you, when you like slaughter this cow? Well, you know, you're not going to like, like you want to do it in the most most ethical way, and kosher produced um, meats and poultry are, are kind of held to be high in a high standard ethically, as well as you know not being so gluttonous in the amount that you eat and how much you're taking from the animal. Um, also recognizing like the dangers of of just like blood and why you should drain blood and and be clean about these things. It kind of like Andy had hit on like giving a clean standard for how you regulate what you're taking into your body. So I, I think that they definitely have a, a pragmatic sense and an ethical sense as well. And then can also be spiritual as in like, you know, why you should have one of the five types of grain grains of, of matzah. And if you don't have that and it, you know, it might not be kosher and all these things. So um, I think it has a pragmatic sense to it as well. Okay. Well, and, and let's be frank. I mean, part of, if religion or faith or spirituality is done right, it's there is tends to be something about turning away from what you want. Not, not like being like over the top, although there are some religions that definitely practice like severe asceticism and severe fasting as a way of spiritual purity. As a, as a Buddhist, I can really debate that for a long time, but like, but definitely there's this idea of like part of how we grow spiritually is that we don't ask ourselves like, 
what do we want in this moment? And, you know, and how do we satisfy our immediate like cravings for things? But like, how do we take the time to take a step back and do what's right, eat the right amount, do the right thing for the animal, make sure everyone gets fed? You know, I wonder if there's something to that too. But that's just that moment of observance, letting that be a moment of reflection. Right. And I think the danger there is you can take it too far. Um, so I, I want to say today is the birthday of Origin of Alexandria, who was kind of a desert father, um, who was an extreme ascetic, who was all about purity to the point where he castrated himself. Like he's focused so much on purity that he was being self-destructive. And I wonder um, how we draw that line, how we say like we're worrying about being pure and making sure we're serving God through what we're eating. And at what point it becomes we're actually being destructive towards ourselves by not eating what's in front of us, not eating what's available because we're too focused on this question of purity. Um, and yeah, I, I know, um, so I've, I worked with the, a Muslim population when I was living in Europe and during Ramadan, like people would make terrible decisions for their health. They, and they would do it for the name of religion, but people who weren't getting enough food as it was, fasting all day and then feeling like headed or passing out on the street. And so like, I wonder... At what point do we respect, yes, this is religious tradition, but at what point do we say, no, you're causing harm to your body? Um, purity is not that important that you should be killing yourself for it. And that, that's just me speaking, not saying for Christians or for the Methodists or anything else, but I'm just... Well, and I, I think that, I think a bigger question that stems out of that is um, a lot of these guidelines were written when the world had a very small population. What does it mean when we're in or approaching 7 billion people? And people are starving. Um, if there are cows all around them, should they eat them so they have food? Um, and that's that's a question. Not not criticizing the tradition that creates that, but just is it more important for people to starve for our neighbors to die than it is to re again remain religiously pure? And I think that's something that is something that maybe all religions need to be wrestling with, whether they have food guidelines or not. Most Christians in North America don't have any food guidelines at all, uh, but we have the ability to change the balance of who is hungry and who is not if we choose to. If, if we, and this is cliche, I get that, but if we gave up a latte a week or a fast food meal a week and put that money directly towards feeding hungry people, we could make a huge difference if everyone carrying that label Christian would do that, but we don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think, I think part of it though, is like, maybe it's a form of martyrdom in a way to give up some of these things. Like, well, mm -hmm. I'm sacrificing this much. See how like easily accessible this could be to me, but I choose to serve God instead. Yeah. Um, coming from a, from a very Mormon perspective would be uh, looking at the story. There's a, the story of Joseph Smith, when he, the the prophet of Mormonism, uh, Joseph Smith, when he was a young boy, he had to get operated on his leg, and this was back in like eighteen fifteen ish. I don't know, sometime around then, and um, he abstained from from taking alcohol to kind of like numb the pain, and he was seen as kind of like a martyr. Like, wow, you know, um, some of these things are just you know, seen as maybe as a, as a badge of like, well, I'm giving up so much already. I'm giving up coffee. I'm giving up tea, giving up alcohol, you know, like, um, like maybe it is seen as, as a form of, of like social, social acceptance in your community as well as, as like, look how much I'm sacrificing. But also there are groups like Mormons actually do donate the money from fasting to, 
to people that don't have food. And I'm sure there's, that's not the only one. I'm sure there's several others out there that do the same. Yeah. Yeah, Mormonism has a really interesting relationship with food because it's there's oh, yeah. very much you know a great deal of um, like what church run food production, and then mm-hmm. you know part of the practice is to have enough food for your family for a year. It's it's very. But I think it's also very it. interesting that they own Pepsi and are killing what? us. Does the, does the church own Pepsi? Maybe not the church, but but prominent Mormons own Pepsi. At least they don't own Coke. Well. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> if we're wrong, you can correct us, listeners. Okay, but you get yeah. the point that we're saying that you know this. There's this high emphasis on food, but it's not necessarily an emphasis on health or an emphasis on pureness or goodness in our bodies. And how are how do those two get disconnected, and how should they be connected? So, so to kind of flip this on its head, um, for several of us around the table. Um, the second part of this question is how does food mark a religious observance that we partake in? And so for me personally, that's communion. Um, I currently attend an ELCA church. So uh, the body and blood are uh, given every week at every service. And I don't think they have any really crazy views on that. Um, If they do, I need to do more reading. Sorry about that. Um, But Basically, this idea, the primary idea is that God's grace is given when we partake of this meal. And not only is it a spiritual grace, but it's also a physical grace that God provides food for our bodies. And I used to come from a tradition that only took communion once a quarter because it was so special that we had to preserve it. And, um, you know, I'm not sure I could have gotten through the last two years if I wasn't taking it every week. And being reminded that God loves me in the midst of my questions, in the midst of my journey, um, that his grace is sufficient even when I don't have the faith to match it. Um, And I think there's something really special in that. And um, when it comes to food, just this idea of partaking, of tasting, of smelling, of touching God's grace as it enters me reminds me of this intangible person that I'm in relationship with. And I think that's really important. Yeah, we talked a lot about at at our table last week um, about how there is something really sacred too about gathering around a table and, and eating together. And, you know, mm-hmm. we did that here today. And what is it about that notion of of gathering, you know, and just like the disciples did, or just like, you know, so many stories. What is it that's so sacred about that? You know, and thinking about too, like, um, you know, if you were in a different place um, where maybe someone was offering you food that wasn't part of your ethical consideration um, for whatever reason, like, would you still take it? Would you, if someone gave you, is the notion of hospitality so very sacred and so very easy to understand across, you know, from human to human, culture to culture, that we wouldn't turn away food, even if it wasn't halal, even if it wasn't vegetarian, you know, because someone has cooked it for us. Well, a, a friend of mine tells the story. She um, was got this huge opportunity to go to the Amazon and work with some of those tribes that are really kind of uncontacted. And while they were there, they took one of their bony, meatless chickens and killed it and offered it to them as a meal. And I just remember listening to her and how overwhelming it was that, I mean, this is 
the the only protein in that form that they have. Um, everything else was grubs and insects and that kind of thing. And they killed a chicken to make her feel welcome and to, to welcome her to their table. And that just was overwhelming to her, that that sense of community was so important that I will not eat protein so that you can eat this thing. And they wouldn't talk about it that way, but but that's what was going on. And that's a huge challenge. I mean, there are a lot of times where I'll find myself in the same situation, even here in the U.S., where I'll go and be invited to come to a community and sit down and know that it is a dirt poor community that is um, people who don't have the means to be feeding me a meal. And yet for me to say no when they offer that to me um, would be a sign of not only disrespect, but just not honoring the work that they've done to go into preparing that and to saying, we're going to take, you know, the zero money that we make during the week and spend it to feed you or to feed the community. And so, yeah, I, I really struggle as a, you know, straight white male kind of pinnacle of privilege in a lot of ways going into those communities and saying, yes, but that's, that is a way of honoring God and honoring those people who I'm in a relationship with. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely a struggle. Yeah. There's something sacred in the giving and something sacred in the receiving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even um, when it feels uncomfortable. So maybe if we can talk about, if yours fits into this, like how does food work in general in religious communities that we've been in or in communities that we're part of? Or you can go back to what you were going to say. I was just going to say, I've definitely <laughs> been on that jerk end of it and turned down food when I was really? a missionary in Guatemala. Yeah. Uh, I mean, part of it had to do with certain dietary restrictions that I have actually for my health, but a lot of it had to do with the rules that I was given as a Mormon missionary in in Guatemala, like couldn't eat you couldn't drink Coca-Cola. Um, that was a rule. Nobody really knows why. I don't at least I don't know why. I'm someone knows why, right? But not me. Um, in like turning that down and there would be poor families that would buy this Coca-Cola for us and like here, like you're American, like here, enjoy this. And I'm like, sorry, I can't do it. And uh <laughs> I look back and I'm like, gosh, it's such a such a Paul, such a jerk, man. Like <laughs> Right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and then there were times that I sucked it up and I ate some really horrible food. Right. And you just, you just do it because, um, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to sacrifice so much to give a stranger food. Um, but the fact that they invited me into their homes and I was a stranger from foreign country, um, I wish I would have drank all the cook I could have to at least let someone know that I was grateful. Um, but Paul food- talks about this phenomenon, by the way, in Second Corinthians. <laughs> two Corinthians. You mean two Corinthians. <laughs> sorry to bring that. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Um, but your question was like how physically plays a role? Yeah, yeah, like how does it function at our events um, yeah. and maybe Mark's different observances that we have, but I – I don't know what all what all always comes to mind is like the potluck. That was a huge part of my tradition. And while it doesn't necessarily have religious significance in like a spiritual marking of anything, but it's it's the building of community. It is how you create those social bonds. It's a Wesleyan love feast. I mean, oh, so okay. part of our tradition, Janelle and I both come out of a Wesleyan tradition. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they viewed sharing a meal as so sacred that they actually created a what they call the Wesleyan love feast, um, where if you didn't have an elder who could com- have communion, you could still sit together and acknowledge the sacredness of each other and of community and of the earth and of what had brought about that that bounty. 
Um, so yeah, like I would say the potluck is absolutely a sacred act. I'd say it fits absolutely within at least the theology framework I come out of and you come out of as well. Yeah. So sorry to me to cut you off there. No, that's fine. Yeah. I'd, I'd say food is definitely a part of a lot of, a lot of, um, religious gatherings, even if it's not specifically like a certain food. I mean, Mormons have linger longers after church a lot of times and it's just time to hang out with on a Sunday and eat really, really good Mormon food and some like those Mormon moms in the cookie in the uh, chili cook-offs. Oh man, I miss that. Um, but, like those are, those are, those are good because food, I feel like food is something that a lot of people, I'd say most humans can relate with because that's what keeps you alive, right? So food is something that I'd say most people enjoy. Not all, of course. Um, some people maybe don't get much joy out of eating. Um, and that's fine. But um, I'd say in a lot of religious communities, I mean, I remember reading even the term companion comes from like one you break bread with, right? So it's so like your friends are the people that you eat with. Um, eating is something very sacred, even especially in Judaism. Um, I spent some time in, in Jerusalem and was invited by by this person I had met, um, and he invited me to go to this um, feast for for Sukkot, and I'm just hanging out with this really cool Orthodox Jewish family and um, eating in the sukkah, which is which is part of the of Sukkot, and like so many so many Jewish traditions and Jewish feasts are, uh, you're encouraged to invite a stranger and bring somebody else to eat with you. And you can kind of be that, that goy there that can flick the light switch for them. But, but no, 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 nobody does that. But, <laughs> um, yeah, no, but I, I remember being invited and being, being made to feel very welcome. And I think it's all about inclusion. Food is something that most people can, can feel included by. So we're going to go around the table and list our favorite potluck food. Oh, geez. Can we pick one? I'm with the chili cook-off. I think that's a great option. Yeah. I'm also going to go with chili. Mm-hmm. Um, every Mormon Halloween, or is like, they call the trunk or treat at the church, and then inside all the moms are doing like their chili cook-off, and oh, some good time. Yeah, good stuff. I'm all about the fried chicken. You cannot have mm-hmm. a good potluck in Virginia if you don't have some fried chicken. Yeah. So like fried chicken and biscuits, uh, that was a staple in every potluck I grew up going to. Yeah. Uh-huh. We often had pasta too. Spaghetti. Spaghetti with meat. How about you? I would say the joy of the potluck is in of myself, like one of my very favorite foods. Like, like, like a spread of food, like same thing with party food, like leftover party food or potluck food and just having like the variety and being in that setting. Like that's my favorite, one of my favorite ways to eat and to just graze and get a little of stuff. Yeah. Uh So taste everything. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, we just talked through the next question, which was about gathering and eating and how that enforces social bonds. So, um, let's talk about fasting for a minute. We have a few minutes left. Um, have you ever fasted? Did it achieve what you intended and how? So I'll say I'm pretty anti-fast with food, um, especially when, like we are talking about before, how a lot of communities don't have access to food. And so they're pushed to fast um, when that is detrimental to their health. And so, um, yeah, I, I think we can lift up fasting as this kind of sacred thing without thinking of, once again, the practical real world implications, where if you have a 
community that has no money and already is limited to maybe one meal a day, if you take that one meal a day away, they collapse on the job. Um, so I, I struggle with fasting in the 21st century with the way that it's been kind of um, enforced or encouraged in certain communities. And let's just throw in there, um, it just makes me think of school lunches, that people need to know that for many, many, many more children than you would expect, those meals that they get at school are the only meals that they get. And during breaks or in the summer, they do not eat. Fasting is their life because they have no choice. And so before we think that this issue doesn't have anything to do with the world we're living in, it has everything to do with the decisions we're making about education and taking care of our children. Sorry for the shameless thing, but we got to face it. We got to face it. Other um, fasting stories. Let's see. So this American Life did a great segment and one of their regular contributors, like, I feel, was it this American Life? It must have been. Um, And he did a pretty significant fast. Yes. And he did. And he did an audio recording of it every single day. And he fasted for like a month and he was eating a very little bit. He was eating like vegetable broth because you have to have a certain number of electrolytes or else like your heart stops beating and your cells stop passing fluid through them. And he basically was like, yeah, at the the end of at the end of the month, I uh, I'm an atheist. And I I kind of was like a little bit nicer (laughs) than I was. Somebody, somebody cut me off as I was coming through the crosswalk. Instead of flipping him the bird, I was just kind of like, be well with you, friend, <laughs> or whatever he said. And like, it didn't, it didn't go as far as he thought it was really going to. And he was coming at it from a very like humanist, subjective point of view. But people have these like religious experiences where they deprive themselves. They're not eating. They're wandering around the desert without water, and then they have, they encounter God, or they encounter some sort of major spiritual realization. He was wondering if he could induce that in himself. And he basically just induced something that you can get from, you know, a few years of good meditation or something, like, you know, some prayer. Yeah. Um, I gave up, uh, I went vegan for Lent one year, which was not giving up all food. Um, But it is something you definitely have to choose to do. And... It made me much more observant. I would love to tell you that I stayed vegan. I have not been able to achieve that yet. Um, But it did change very much how some foods taste to me. And and it definitely turned off some cravings for things. And I'm much more conscious about or try to be, you know, conscious of how much meat I'm eating or why that's important in my diet when there are tons of other ways to get protein and get the energy that you need that don't involve killing an animal. Um, so it, I, I found it to be very valuable. Um, and that include like one of the outflows of that too, is I love vegan cooking because you have to be super creative um, to meet the American palate that we have. And um, I cook vegan every Monday night for my house church and I love doing it. It's a lot of fun. Um, I've, I've fasted. I've fasted many a time. <laughs> Yeah, the first Sunday of every month, in at least in Mormonism, is is called Fast Sunday. You're encouraged to fast for 24 hours and give the money of abstaining from at least two meals and donate to charity. So it's it's a pretty good thing. Um, I I fasted many times, and I don't feel like fasting has ever really lifted lifted me to a higher place spiritually. But I feel that fasting has, um, I'd say, maybe given me a little bit more confidence of things that I'm 
able to do and overcome um, in a physical sense. Like, oh, I, I, I guess I don't necessarily need to eat every time maybe I'm sitting down, you know, and just maybe not doing something or, you know, it really makes you become a little bit more conscious. At least for me, it made me become a little bit more aware and a little bit more um, conscious of, of what I was eating and, and how my thoughts are and my relationship with food. Um, it definitely didn't like change my life or anything, to be honest. I mean, it's great. And, but you know, right after I would fast, I'd, I feel very empowered. I'm like, wow, you know, I, I, if I can get through something like this. Um, but fasting also is, I think, I think fasting, depending on the person can definitely be, to be good. Um, depending on the perspective that they want. I've, I mean, I fasted for answers as well that I, about questions that I never got answers to. Um, and I always, and sometimes I felt like when my prayers weren't answered that fasting would give it more of a, okay, well maybe my prayer wasn't good enough, you know, so I need to fast. I need to, I need to starve myself a bit. Um, but in a spiritual sense, you know, like not just not eat food, but focus on God every time. Or we're reading something that said, every time you get a hunger pain to, to pray and think about what you're fasting for. Um, but I'd say most of those prayers and those questions weren't answered. And so to somebody that now doesn't necessarily believe in that, I would, I would say, well, it's okay. It's a learning experience in a way. Um, but for somebody that maybe is still relying on that, I think that it can bring danger. Um, because if you really think that your prayers aren't enough and that starving yourself will get you an answer and you don't get that answer, I mean, it can be definitely can be harmful. And I've definitely know what it's like to feel that way. So I think it can be something in with the right mindset can definitely be positive and can also turn very ugly. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not against being intentional about what you eat or being intentional about what you consume or what you bring into your body. Um, it's when you're told you must fast in order to be a Christian, you must fast in order to be holy. You must, you know, arm your own physical body in order to be sacred. And that is just so against my understanding of God and understanding of God's desire for creation. Yeah, I, I struggle when it gets to that point where if my answer, my prayers aren't being answered, I'm doing something wrong. I'm not fasting enough or I need to starve myself some more. That's when it becomes really destructive. Yeah, and I think it's really important to point out, like, if you have diabetes, if you have chronic illness. <laughs> if you're um, pregnant. If like... you're pregnant, like, all of these things, you should probably not do this. And it is okay if you, you know, I have migraines if the last times I've tried fasting, I immediately get a horrible headache within a couple of hours. And it's not worth it to me because that costs me days. And that doesn't mean I love God any less. And so if you're coming out of a tradition where that was something that was enforced on you, we just want to affirm to you that like you're not failing spiritually if you're not fasting. It's it's okay. Find other ways to show God or your spiritual being that you care for them. There are other... Um, you know, disciplines that you can participate in that don't include making yourself sick. Um, so I'd, I'd also just want to add, like there's variations of fasting as well. You kind of hit on it, like being vegan and doing that as well as, I mean, I've usually fasted without water, which can be very dangerous. And when I was a missionary in Guatemala, I fasted without water, um, which I look back and I'm like, yeah, I'm a survivor. Like good for me. Cause there were areas where it was like 40 degrees Celsius and it's probably really stupid, but you know, there's ways that you can make fasting work for you in a healthy sense, just like Janelle said. And sometimes it's fasting with water. Sometimes it's without. Sometimes it's maybe drinking some, one of those energy drinks halfway through and pushing through it. But you can find a way if, you're, if you want to make it work in a healthy sense. 
But I feel like I, I remember reading something really interesting too, that there are some people who develop a very specific eating disorder where they will only eat like peas or they will only eat um, one or two very specific mm -hmm. kinds of food because they do get an, an obsessive quality with with purity. And they feel like that's the only thing that they can like safely put into their body without polluting their body. And this becomes a very like obsessive focus. And I can eat my six pieces of iceberg lettuce today and that's it type mentality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doesn't sound real healthy. No. Yeah. That's well, not, uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say like, it's so interesting how all these things, we, we talk a lot about religion in this group and it's so interesting because it's like, this is a really good idea it, up until this point. And then it starts to like veer into something that we would all agree is like not very healthy. And I'm always curious, like, where is that line and what? Well, and I think this, <laughs> the last question that we have to look at yeah. kind of leads us there. Yeah. Is there something about the use of food itself or is a religion's observance of food practices meant to get at something deeper with food playing an integral means to an end? Is it because we need the food every day that when we use these practices, it has some sort of impact or is it just an easy thing to manipulate because we need it every day? I'd like to think it's the former. I actually think it's probably more the latter. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, we celebrate communion and it's sacred because we all eat meals every day and we share a table with each other. And we know that this is a communal act and it's a sacred act. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that's actually why a lot of us do it. So, so just thinking about my experiences of, of fasting, at least, and, and how at least food can, can be used. When you think about it, you're, you're really putting off the physical, the fit, like the temporal world when you fast. So in a way, I mean, I mean the whole <laughs> idea of like eat, drink and be merry, you know, like give into what your body wants but is that what your spirit wants? And so, um, it, yeah. Is there a difference? I mean, probably, I mean, gluttony, that's not something, you know, taking advantage. Um, I mean, there's, there's thought in, in, in Mormon ideology that, that Jesus realized he was the Messiah, he was the Christ, um, by fasting in the desert for 40 days. So it's like, okay, by him giving up, giving up on sustaining himself in a physical sense in the world um, brought him to a higher level spiritually. So, well, but that also, that also like pushes a very, um, I'm going to forget the word Gnostic sense of like the body is bad. The spirit is good. Well, definitely. I mean, and, and that's not necessarily a helpful thing either. Oh, it's not. Yeah. It can, I mean, it, it's kind of a, it can definitely be taken to a, a part that's that, that perverts the view of, of a body in general, instead of being looked at maybe as something like to be worshiped in a way as in like, you know, all how it can sustain itself in, in certain types of Christianity it can definitely be seen as something negative. I mean, like in, in, in Judaism, there's morning prayers when you wash your hands after you go to the bathroom and it's thanking God for the, the marvels of how the body works and how, Every little thing in the body works and is in its place and, and what a miracle it is. But, um, you know, it's still, there's still a form in, in religious culture, especially like Judea or just maybe North American Christian culture of 
the body is bad. And so, um, I don't think it's necessarily food itself, but I think it's a temptation of, of like lingering between the world in, in a higher spiritual level. I, I think where the danger comes in with that is so, you know, 40 days, um, I, I read that as more metaphor than actual literal and that you can look, you know, after three weeks, the body starts to shut down entirely if you don't eat food. Um, that's biological facts. So that's something like your cells start to break down. You, you cannot serve after three weeks, you're done. Um, so the idea of a person fasting for 40 days to reach spiritual clarity, um, I have a hard time reading that literally in that if you fast for 40 days, you're probably going to die. Um, in fact, I would say there's a very high likelihood that you're going to die biologically, um, because your cells cannot support that. But he's the Messiah. Sure. He's the Messiah. I, I, right. I see that. So can God allow that to happen? Sure. Um. When we look at Jesus fasting for 40 days and say, well, now I'm, I'm going to fast for 40 days. Um, so like there are communities that say we're going we're gonna to follow Jesus in this time. You get violently ill. You get very sick. And so I don't know if these are even models that we're meant to follow exactly as the way that they are portrayed in Scripture. Because I don't know if, I, I don't think they're possible, um, at least without some sort of divine intervention coming in and saying, I'm going to sustain you for 40 days, even if you don't eat any food. Because our, our Medical science shows you that if you go that long, you will die. Yeah, but with God, all things are possible, Indy. I'm not arguing with that. I'm not arguing with that. You know, I say that with sarcasm, but I'm being serious. Like maybe if you lift yourself to a higher spiritual level, I mean, I personally don't believe this, but I mean, that could be the argument of some people. Absolutely. It's possible. See, that's the total opposite of the Buddhist story because in the Buddhist story, like he became an ascetic and he nearly starved himself to death. The, The scriptures say, like, you could see his spine through the front of his stomach. He was so thin. And he, that's the moment where he's like, this is bullshit. <laughs> and, <laughs> and actually began pursuing what would the middle way look like where we don't indulge our cravings that lead to addiction and lead to harm. And we don't deny ourselves to the point of asceticism. Like we have the happy medium. It wasn't until he realized that he could not escape the self through killing the body. He could not gain anything spiritually by neglecting the body. Like the body and spirit had to be whole and, you know, had to be nourished and had to be, that, that's just all part of the middle way. It's not this or this, it's something in between and we're walking down that path. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting too, like your comment about, well, we don't, uh, I don't remember exactly what you said about, but about gluttony. I mean, Andy and I can tell you from, potlucks in the wesleyan tradition that uh there aren't a lot of skinny folks around that potluck and uh those are the kind of potlucks i want to go to and and nobody (laughs) and nobody really cared and you would have and this isn't demeaning anyone specifically but like you would have some rather overweight pastors wandering around at district events or camp and you're just kind of like I'm not sure how you can get from here to your cabin. Like, and nobody said a word. And so we, we kind of have this weird like dichotomy of like, we elevate fasting and what it is, but then we ignore the other side of it. And then if we decide to address it, which I think maybe the church has started to, then we tell you it's your fault that you're diabetic or you're struggling or whatever. Or if you come down with something that might have genetic components, well, it's just your disobedience. And so the way that that food is managed is very inconsistent in some circles, and that's really frustrating and does a lot of damage. 
Anything else about food before we wrap up? Food is good. Food is very good. I enjoyed sharing this story with my table about the moment where the very, very sacred good times meal I had once. I was having a really good day. Something really, I don't remember what it was, but it was an amazing day. And I celebrated my amazing day by eating an amazing combo from Good Times Burger. And there was something about that day and that moment and that commemoration where that Good Time fast food meal became like absolutely holy. And I swear to God, it like, it must have like my body like digested it beautifully. Like it was this whole thing. Have you guys ever had that (laughs) holy bag of Doritos? Holy or holy something that would not normally... I take go back to the potluck. So like I do a Friendsgiving every year with friends and we sit around and there's something sacred about even though most people there aren't religious in any sense of the word um, and don't want anything to do with that. There is something holy about breaking bread, about sharing life together, um, whether it's regardless. regardless of where people come from, what their background is. So what yeah, the like, food is or even what the food is like the food is typically like we are mostly poor young people in Denver who were like social justice folks doing organizing work. So like. It is whatever you can scrounge together at the last minute to make a meal, but it's fantastic. It's sacred. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely say like being in a community makes it the best. Eating, even like going camping and making food on a portable stove is still like we're eating together and it's great. And yeah, it's a companionship. And then if somebody complains about the food, you're like, well, you make a better one next time. And then you just get over it. And then there's more food in the future. So secures that. Awesome. So we agree. Food is great. Food is great. Food is good. All right. Well, we want to uh, say cheers to all of you tonight and to Boggy Draw Brewery for providing us with our beer tonight. And we're going to... Thanks, guys. Thank you. And we'll reach out to STEM and see if maybe they want to donate some cider sometime um, because they're fantastic. And we want to remind you that we have beer camp coming up in august here in denver if you would like to join us and meet us and meet around the mics we'd love to have you and several of us will be going to wild goose festival and so if you would like to find us there we will have t-shirts a booth and a podcast table so we'll be around so thank you so much for listening and cheers cheers salute